Welcome, friends, to the Miles with Marty podcast. This is home base for running community love, and we're sponsored by Squirrels Nut Butter. Spread the lube, and your blister and chafing problems will go away. You can thank me later. For this week's episode, we welcome the legend, Bob Becker. He's a beloved race director, a badass ultra runner, a multiple-time Badwater finisher, and just an all-around nice guy. Last month, Bob made a run at being the oldest finisher of the Badwater 135. He shares a little bit with us about his running and race directing, and of course, all the goods about this year's race. It is such an inspiring story. You do not want to miss it. Trust me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Miles with Marty podcast. I've got Bob Becker, the legend, on the line, and we're going to talk about all things ultra running. And how you doing, Mr. Bob? I am doing very well, sir. Doing great. And pleasure talking with you. That's good. Same here. Uh, it's a it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I haven't got to meet you in person yet. Uh, as I said in my email, uh, I'm getting I'm doing my first hundred miler at Daytona, so I hope to get to meet you in person in a few months. Absolutely, I'll be there. So we'll have a chance to talk then. Look forward to it, Marty. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited for the challenge and the opportunity for sure. Yeah, you picked a good first first hundred. It's a uh, it's a fast course. The weather should be great. Uh, you know, it's mostly flat. It's um, yeah. I think you've chosen a, you've chosen well. And if I must say so myself, <laughs> well, that's good. I'm probably going to go ahead and register anyway before I even know how it goes in Daytona. But I've actually got the keys planned for number two. I was going to kind of talk to you about that later on in our conversation to get sure. some uh, tips. Absolutely. I've uh, talked to a lot of Florida ultra runners and I'm a big part of the social media community. So I know a good bit about you just from that, but I'm just going to kind of play dumb. I don't know your background. Like you don't sound like you got a Florida accent. So where are you from originally? (laughs) Well, originally, originally from New England. I, uh, my family's from central Massachusetts and I born and grew up there until I was 13. And then my family moved to the D.C. area. Uh, we lived in suburban Maryland for a, a long time. Um, and in the uh, early 90s for, for work, I moved out to the Midwest, spent uh, seven years out there in Des Moines and in Minneapolis and uh, had the chance to move here to Florida about 21 years ago or so and in Fort Lauderdale and really love it here. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, we moved around a little bit, but uh, mostly East Coast and Central part of the United States. So what kind of work did you do? I was in mortgage banking, residential most of my career and commercial lending towards the end. And uh, the last 15 years, I've been a been a race director. I decided in 2008 after the after the uh, the crash, if you will, uh, to take a vow of poverty and become a race director. (laughs) Haven't regretted it since. It's been just an incredible experience being able to combine my hobby and my love of the sport with what I do every day in my work. So yeah, that's the story. So have all of your races been ultras or did you do any shorter races? Yeah, well, basically they've all been ultras, although I was involved with a friend uh, helping him put on a a 5K that was actually done on the beach, on the sand. We did it for a couple of years and then uh, then COVID hit and it wasn't you know, it's not my wheelhouse, really. Uh, so I was backing out of that anyhow. Uh, ultras are really kind of what I do and um, my first love. So uh, not it, it's not that I would not get involved in a shorter distance race, but, you know, that's not my strength. And 
a lot of other people are better at it than I am. So when you came to Florida, had you when did you start running? Were you out running already then? Yeah, I really I, I ran the mile in high school, but uh, my whole adult life I played sports. I go to the gym, stay in shape, and I ran just a little bit as part of conditioning. Really, I really wasn't racing until uh, some friends of mine till I was already here in Florida in 2002, and some friends from Minneapolis called me and said that they were going to run uh, Grandma's Marathon. They were going to run a marathon for the first time, and why don't I come up and join them? So I wound up uh, going to a running shoe store and buying some shoes and asking them, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) They put me in touch with a marathon training group. So it was going to be a one and done, but I went up to grandma's and I actually qualified for Boston. And uh, so I said, well, I got, I got to do that. And one thing led to another and I can, I continued running. I loved, you know, I I loved it, loved the people I was hanging with and got to meet my training group. And one Saturday in um, uh, 2004, one of my friends said to me, did you ever hear of the Marathon de Sable? It's, uh, it's an ultra marathon. And I responded by asking him what an ultra marathon was. And then I went home and looked it up because I had no idea. And of course, the, the Marathon de Sable is, uh, is a race in the Sahara Desert in Morocco that's run in April every year. And so the following week, I said to this friend of mine, I said, Jared, don't you have a birthday ending in a zero next April? And he was turning 40 and um, I was turning 60. So we decided to give ourselves a birthday present run MDS. And that's kind of how my ultra running career happened. So it was all sort of by accident. It just sort of evolved, but without a whole lot of planning up front. Wow. So if my math is correct, then your first, you were 57 for your first marathon? Yeah, I was 57 for my first marathon, 58 for Boston. And after that, I really only ran uh, a few marathons for training purposes, usually with a pack on my back, you know, training for an ultra. Yeah. So my uh, my marathon running career was pretty short. Yeah. Well, you just don't know how good that makes me feel. I'm 57 now, and I just I just had my first marathon just a few years ago, 2018. But, you know, I've got all these races that I want to do, and you give me hope that maybe I can actually achieve that. Not only yes, but heck yes. Absolutely. Yeah, just... Uh, you know, try to stay healthy and, um, you know, keep keep at it, stay steady. And you should be fine for a long time. No question about it. So I know you've, I, I looked at your ultra sign up and I know you've got lots of epic races and all. Is there any, and I know I've heard a couple of podcasts that you talked about, is, is what is your favorite race of all time? Do you have one? Well, you know, it's a, it's really a hard question to answer because they're sort of, you almost have to put them in categories, right? right. I guess my, my favorite, my favorite experience, uh, favorite race is probably Badwater, yeah. uh, whether I'm running it or crewing for somebody or volunteering out there. This year was actually my 15th year in a row at, at Badwater. I love the race and I love the family, if you will, and the culture out there. But probably the most meaningful ultra ever raced brand was in China about six years ago, a group of Americans went to run the inaugural Mount Gaolagong Ultra, which was uh, in the in the very southwestern part of China near the Myanmar-Burma border. And it's an area where during World War II, my father actually flew and, and, and dropped bombs in that area fighting wow. the Japanese. <clears throat> so the way the history of that war went, uh, the Japanese were essentially stalled and their progress turned around in that area with a combination of American bombing and Chinese and American soldiers fighting together on the ground. So literally when I was there, if I 
looked up in the sky 75 years before, my father would have been flying in a B-25 Mitchell bomber from India over the Himalayas, over what they call the hump, dropping bombs there in support of that effort. So it was pretty emotional for me. And um, to this day, Americans are revered in that part of China for having helped turn the tide of war and, you know, and recapture their territory. So it was quite an experience. I'd have to say of all the races I've ever run, that one's probably my favorite personally for that reason. Makes a lot of sense. As far as race directing, do you, and I'm kind of jumping back a little bit, do you, you started, what year did you say, 2008? Yeah, actually in in 2007, I had, uh, early 2007, I talked to some friends of mine about the fact that we didn't have any ultras in South Florida and um, asked whether anybody thought it would make sense to try to run the Florida Keys. Key Largo to Key West is 100 miles and see if that would make sense as an ultra. So five of us and uh, decided to run it and with some friends in support. And um, that's kind of, that was in 2007, it was kind of the prequel year, if you will, to Keys 100, which started in 2008. So technically the first ultra I've uh, produced and directed was 2008, but the whole thing started the year before. Okay. And so the keys has been going ever since. Now, did you, did you miss a year with COVID? Yeah, we did miss a year with COVID. We did a, um, a virtual race that year, but, uh, other than that, it's been continuous and this will be our 15th year, uh, in next May. So it's pretty exciting to have been able to hang in there that long and create a race. It's, you know, very important to a lot of people. So I'm really happy about it. Now, does the 100-miler usually sell out? Uh, it does. Last year it did, um, fairly late in the game, but it, yes, it did sell out. Um, we have a 100-miler, a 50-miler, and a 50K, and we also have a 100-mile and a 50-mile relay, and the 100-mile relay sells out as well. Well, I've been sitting on the fence about signing up for it. Maybe after we talk tonight, maybe I'll make up my mind because I'm just on the fence about you know, how I can get my heat heat acclimation in up here in Georgia. I'm up in Macon, Georgia, just south of Atlanta. Well, Marty, I'll tell you, uh, very frankly, if you were to wait till after Daytona, you will very likely still be able to get in. So um, if you want to, you know, kind of go through that first test, if you will, and see how you do, you should be okay. And um, I'll go a step further and say, uh, I'll make sure you get in if you want to wait till after Daytona. All right. Wow. That's a good, that's a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely willing, willing to do that. Okay. Sounds good. So I think you're going to find Daytona is really a a really good training race. A good first, good good first hundred miler. And uh, you'll have a real good sense of how you're doing and what you need to do differently. And you'll learn a lot and it'll prepare you well to, you know, to for for the keys in May. Yeah. Well, that's good. So, we talked about the, your favorite race. Now, are there any other races that that stand out that you that you had some epic experiences that you'd like to share about? Or I get into talking about your bad water experiences and some of your other stuff. Yeah, I can probably mention a couple of them that were uh, where they were. I don't know, epic is the word, but um, <laughs> you know, that you not only have your straight point to point or or fixed distance races, but fixed time races as well. You know six hour, 12 hour, 24, and so on. Um, a race I ran about three or four years ago called a race for the ages, ARFTA, right. um, which you, your, your, your audience may or may not be familiar with, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's what's called a race handicapped, um, excuse me, an age handicap race. It's a fixed time race. 
but the number of hours you have to run to see how many miles you can go is based upon your age. So if you're um, 47 years old, you, if you have 47 hours to see how many miles you can run. If you're 74 years old, like I was three years ago when I ran it, uh, I had 74 hours to see how far I could. And the theory is that younger runners are probably going to be faster. Uh, older runners are going to be slower. But by giving the older runners more time, it equalizes, in theory, the opportunity for everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt at the time when I was training for that race that that was probably the only opportunity I'd ever have to win a race. So I took it real seriously, trained real hard and very focused on it. And uh, I wound up winning the race and actually breaking the record. So that was a lot of fun. That was definitely one I remember fondly. And I also really like um, stage races. And again, if anybody's not familiar with a sta- what a stage race is, stage race is a multi-day race where you run a certain number of miles, a certain fixed distance each day and uh, spend the night generally in a tent along the right along the route the next day you get up and you run another number of miles each day being called a stage so stage one goes from point a to point b x number of miles you spend the night fix your own food generally you get up the next morning and you go from point b to point c and that's what the marathon to solve was my first ultra which was a seven day race about 160 miles and one of my other favorites was Grand to Grand, which is a stage race from the North Rim of the Grand Canyon out through Arizona and Utah past all, or not all, but many of the national parks winding up at the Grand Staircase and spectacular scenery and a just a great way to see that part of the world. Very different from anything else that generally we do running races, but uh, I'd recommend that type of experience to anybody. So that one in particular, do you stay in like tents, like at eight stations, like every 30 miles or how, how far do you go each day? Well, the, the race, you know, it depends on the race, but uh, Grand to well, Grand. Let's, say, let's uh, say Grand to Grand. All right, well, Grand to Grand is also like Marathon to Saab, about 150, 160 miles over seven days. So the, you're averaging about a marathon to, to about a 50K each day, but there's there's one two-day segment in the middle where you're running 50 miles or so, which you can do over two days, or you can run it all without without stopping, basically. And then you have most of the rest of the next day to, to, to recover. So what you do is you, uh, in those races, the race uh, organization sets up little a little tent city, and you usually are sharing a tent with eight or nine other people. So it's a big walled tent, and they provide water, and otherwise, you're pretty much on your own. You're carrying all your own gear, all your own food for the week, wow. everything you, you need, including certain required safety type elements. Um, so you're starting off with a lot of weight and um, gradually eating your way through part of it. So you can't carry all that water. So they provide water during the day and at night. The next morning, you get up and you start running. The race organization takes down that tent city, drives around the course to where the you're going to end the next day and they set the tent city up again. So when you arrive, your tent is all there and you and your mates bed down again after fixing yourself some dinner. And that's how it continues for the duration of that race. You do have places again along the route where you, it's like checking under timing stations where you're given additional water because again, you can't carry it all. Um, and on that long 50 mile day, the that water stop usually has a one or more tents so that if you decide to to sleep and finish the 50 miles the next day you can do that you've got some shelter hmm. 
So what kind of food do you carry? It's got to be lightweight. Is it like dehydrated stuff like you use for camping, like MRE? It, well, yeah. Well, yeah, generally more like freeze-dried meals. So you have water. So you're, um, you know, you, you mix water in a freeze-dried type of food, and there's a million varieties that you, can, right. that you can use. And then during the day, it's trying to figure out what you can carry that you're right, where weight is the, the weight and the weight convenience trade-off is, is vital. Um, so you might carry, uh, you know, gels or, or cliff bars or something more like real food. It's very, very individualized at that point. But the point is you're, you have to carry all your own stuff. I remember uh, Marathon Saab and maybe Grand Grant required that you show in advance of the race that you're carrying at least 2,000 calories a day. Uh, to be sure you're you're being safe and you're being healthy. So you, there's there's a minimum number of calories you have to carry with you. And of course, then there are, you know drink mixes like tra- like tailwind count also. So like I said, it becomes very very individualized. But generally, the real food is some type of dehydrated thing that is very lightweight. That's that's what most but most of those runners do. So on the first day, your pack is what twenty five pounds or so, maybe thirty. Yeah, that well, yeah, mine was that first day of MDS was about 27. Um, some people will pack more efficiently or they, you know, they they leave, they, they pack almost no additional clothing and, and uh, you know, they just absolutely, they're just absolute minimalists. Um, yeah. I did some trade-offs, wanted a little more convenient. So my pack was a little heavier, but yeah, you're right in the ballgame. It's exactly right. Yeah, that's intriguing. That sounds interesting. I remember, uh, I guess, listening to uh, Dean Carnegie talking about that marathon to salve i think before but but i never really went into depth and thinking of myself actually doing something like that that you mentioned well, marty here's if i if i may here's another suggestion another another uh, alternative so i'm describing what the sort of traditional stage race is but there are others that are <laughs> much more humane for lack of a better word so <laughs> I'm thinking trans Rockies right now. So trans Rockies uh, has two options, a three day and a six day and trans Rockies. All you have to do is carry the stuff you're going to need during the day. Otherwise the race transports all your gear from, you know, the first, the first place where you're staying and to the next place where you're staying. So when you, when you get there, your gear is in your tent waiting for you. Uh, and in that race, they also prepare breakfast and dinner. Whoa. So it's uh, all you have to do is worry about running. Um, it's a very, very social time. It's a very much a fun race. And Trans Rockies um, is out in Colorado and it, it goes up and over Hope Pass um, near Leadville. You actually stay in Leadville. Um, I think when I was there, two different nights and run from there. So that's a different kind of stage race that is um, actually less expensive, much, much more supported, but just a different kind of experience. But uh, one I, Highly recommend as well. Great, great race. A lot of fun. Duly noted. Because <laughs> <Hey. laughs> I, me, I, I'm, I love talking about races and putting more races on my bucket list. That's what I do. It's my passion. But I love the ultra community for sure. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very special. And um, you know, as I said, MDS Marathon de Sable was my first, and the sense of camaraderie and mutual support, while at the same time being very competitive is pretty unique and um, it's, it appealed to me then and it still does. And it's the reason I probably more than any other that I still run ultras and stay involved as a race director. Um, I just really like the people involved and the attitude involved. Regarding bad water, Cape Fear, I think I saw 
that you are doing that race next year? Yeah, next year is the um, the I believe it's the eighth or ninth. I, I I'm one of two people that have run the race every year, and I really like it. It's a very very unique experience. Um, the race is held on Bald Head Island, which you can only access by uh, by boat by ferry, and and it's um, in off the coast of near uh, Southport, North Carolina. Uh, it, most of the island is a nature preserve. The part that's developed is really beautiful. And this particular race um, starts with 10 miles on the, on the roads in Bald Head Island. By the way, there are no, no regular vehicles allowed, only electric golf carts. So 10 miles on the road, and then there's a kind of a transition through a forest preserve for about a mile and a quarter or so. And then you start running out on the sand on the beach <clears throat> right along the Atlantic Ocean coast. The race has two options, a 50K and a 50 miler. So for the 50K, after you've done your 10 miles on the road and your mile and a quarter or so in the woods, you do an out and back 10 miles, 10 miles north, 10 miles south, and that gives you your 50K. If you want to run the 50 miler, you go back out again and do another 10 mile up, 10 mile back loop, and there's your 50 miles or 51 miles. So um, I, I highly recommend that race. It's really a lot of fun. It's beautiful. It's unique because of the combination running on sand and running on the road. Um, so yeah, I'll be back. I'll be back next year for sure. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked you is because I am registered for that one. Woo-hoo. Oh, <laughs> you'll, you'll love it. Uh, that's just great. You'll I'm really a like nervous it. nervous about the sand though. Uh, is the sand, is it soft sand that you're running in for all that, all those miles? That's a good question. It really depends on the tide. And for most of us, um, you're going to get, get a little bit of both. You'll be out there. Well, depending on whether you're running the 50 K or the 50 mile, you, you, if you run the 50 mile, you'll experience both high tide and low tide, in which case you'll run uh, on packed firm sand and on soft sand. So be prepared. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of shoe are you wearing road shoes or trail shoes in that race? Um, I'm, I'm wearing both actually. What I do oh, okay. is uh, at the end of the, at the end of the um, road area, a road piece of this, there's an aid station where you can leave a drop bag and I leave trail shoes. So when I transition from the road out to the beach, I put on trail shoes and gaiters, try to keep the sand out. Now you don't, you don't need trail shoes out there on the sand, but I prefer them. And uh, they just, they work with gaiters better for me. So that's, that's what I do. I take the time to change. Now you, you mentioned gaiters. Is it kind of goes over the top? Yeah. What I do for that race is yes, is the type that goes over the top, but in a race where you're going to like, for example, in the, Marathon de Saab, where you're running in sand dunes, real, real soft, loose sand. If you can find gaiters that are more uh, inclusive, either cover your entire shoe or come close to it, you're better off doing that. And also, they generally come a little higher up your leg as well. Yeah. So, okay. uh, but the ones I use are very simple. They do keep most of the sand out. They, I've, okay. over the years, they've been, they've worked quite well enough. So I'm happy with them. So. So let's move along to the Death Valley. Well, I know there's another bad water. Let's talk about that for a second, because I know you ran that this year too, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Badwater Salton Sea, which is um, sort of like a mini Badwater. It's in San Diego County. <clears throat> it, the race is 81 miles. The, the thing that's most unique about it is that it's a team race, but it's not a relay. So the race allows teams of two or three, and the runners have to stay together the entire time. So the psychology is incredible. So you can be out there running with a partner or two. Uh, you may feel like you want to take a break, but they don't. And um, so it's a real motivator to keep going. Uh, and 
anyway, it's a, it's a race I really like a lot. So the race starts at the Salton Sea, which is a very strange inland, very, very salty body of water. Um, it's pretty much a ghost town around there uh, without going into lots of detail. And then you leave that. It's, a, it's uh, almost all of it, except for about eight miles or so, is on the road. And um, you start actually below sea level. Salton Sea is below sea level. And you wind up um, at the top of Palomar Mountain, which houses um, an old observatory with a, a powerful um, uh, telescope that used to be the biggest uh, in the world, I think, at one point. Um, so you, the last oh, 11 or 12 miles is a climb up to the finish line on Palomar Mountain. So very much like Badwater 135 in Death Valley that I know we're talk about. You start at a very low point. Um, it's mostly a road race. And you wind up climbing the last X number of miles, 10, 12, 13 miles to the finish line. It's eight again, it's 81 miles altogether. And it's a race where you have a support crew leapfrogging you down the course to provide you with all your food and gear and water and everything that you might need. So now going to moving into the Badwater 135. So your first year that you were there, is, is am I correct in that you have to be a crew there one year before you can get into the race to run it? Well, you don't have to be, um, but it's a race where you have to apply to get in. Um, there's much more demand than there is availability. There are only 100 slots, only 100 people allowed to run. That's a, that's a permitting thing. Death Valley National Park only allows 100. So um, you actually have to apply, and there's a committee that decides who gets in and extends invitations to the people that they feel will have the best chance of being able to complete the race. While you're not required to have any crew experience out there, um, it looks good on the resume. And more importantly for you as a runner, it gives you a lot of a real sense of what it's all about. Um, you, you know, you're involved with the heat, you're involved with the distance, with all the climbing. And um, so I highly recommend anybody that has a goal in mind of running Badwater 135 of doing a, being on a crew, if you can possibly do it beforehand. But it's not a it's not a requirement. Yeah. Okay. Now I know the keys is uh, a qualifier for bad water. Is it? Do they for to pick qualifying races? Is it ones that are tough, like hot, or things like that 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 make your resume make it make let them know that you are might be more capable of finishing? Well, that's a that's a yes and no, and I'll I'll, I'll amplify a uh, keys because of the heat factor in the keys. Um, Chris Cosman, the race director, has found over the years that if you're able to complete the Keys 100, you're probably able to complete Badwater 135. Um, but the requirement for a first time runner at Badwater is that you have completed three 100 mile races. And as far as I know, there's no specific list of those which count and those which do not. Oh. Um, but among the three, if Keys was one of them, sort of like having crude, it looks really good on your resume. And as a runner, it helps you prepare for what you're going to experience out there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to say, yeah, you, you have to run keys before you can get the bad water, but, but that's not the case uh, specifically. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So going to bad water now, I've never been to death Valley. And so, but I've been, I've been some hot places, but when I was watching the coverage, from this year, I mean, it was it was super hot, over 120 degrees. Uh, Dawn Lizenby is my coach, and oh, so, okay, sure. And so I was following her along too. 
But let's go back to your first experience at uh, Badwater and just just tell me a little bit about what happened and what sucked you into that community. <laughs> well, uh, as I mentioned to you in 2005, I ran Marathon to South. And literally the very first person, the very first ultra runner I ever met was at a training camp that uh, my coach, Lisa Smith-Batchin and her husband, Jay, put on out in the Tetons. I went out there to participate in that training race. And the first person I met was a guy whose name is Natu Natraj. And Natu wound up being accepted into Badwater in 2007 and asked me if I'd be on his crew. So I said, sure. And that was my first experience uh, out in Death Valley. We actually went out in June to spend a couple of days training and then went back and I was on his crew in July. Uh, and that was my first experience. And I, I just absolutely fell in love with the thing. So the uh, the following year I applied and I got in. So 2008 was the first year I actually ran Badwater. And you were a finisher that year. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, uh, how many years? I mean, how many years have you actually run Badwater? Uh, this was my fifth year running Badwater. Um, I've been out there the last 15 years in a row. Uh, the other years, crewing somebody. Uh, one year I actually worked on the race director staff, but. I've crewed everybody from rookies to the most experienced a Badwater veteran ever um, and everything in between. So, um, yeah, I ran uh, I ran it uh, in 2008 when I was 63. I ran it in um, 2014 when I was 69 and again in 2015 when I was 70. And I finished each of those three years. Uh, last year, uh, I got in uh, and my goal was to set the record as the oldest finisher to break the record and uh, set a new one as the oldest finisher. And um, I did a lousy job of managing my electrolyte uh, balance. I wound up with severe cramping and Charlie horse at about mile 42 or 43. Uh, and it took over an hour and a half before I could get back on my feet again. And by then I had missed the 50 mile cutoff. So it was a, a huge disappointment. And um, I tried again to get in for this year and was able to secure a spot to seek my revenge. So uh, this year was my fifth year actually running the race. Yeah. So what is the 50 mile cutoff? How, what's the time? Um, the, it's, it, it's 10 o'clock AM. Um, but let me clarify what that means. So there, the hundred runners are divided into three groups. The, and the first group starts at eight o'clock at night on a Monday night, the second group at nine 30 and the third group at 11. So the faster you are, the later your start. Obviously, elite runners starting at 11. Um, the cutoff of 10 a.m. the following morning for 50 miles is a firm time cutoff no matter what your start time is. Okay. So for slow guys like me, starting at 8 o'clock, uh, I've got 14 hours to get there. And somebody who's starting at 11 has, excuse me, yeah, at 11 has 11 hours to get there. That seems like a lot of time, but when you factor in the, the heat factor, um, it's, uh, it, it's plenty challenging. Yeah. Now is, is there some pretty significant elevation gain in those first 50 miles too? First 50 miles are mostly rolling. Um, you've got some elevation gain cause you're starting at 252 feet below sea level. And the 50 mile point is at 2000 feet above sea level, but compared to the rest of the climbing you're going to do, it isn't that significant, but, okay. uh, it is 2000 feet of climbing, uh, right there up to getting, getting to that 50 mile point. So in other words, the end of the first 50 miles is all climbing. 
Otherwise, it's somewhat flat to rolling. And you mentioned the electrolyte hydration imbalance there. Can you go into a little detail about that? Just just so I can maybe learn from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, you know, you never you never stop learning. That's for right. sure. And you know, you try different things, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. In fact, sometimes they work one, at one race and they don't at another race. But um, what I what I focus I. I at the end of the day, I think I was not taking in an adequate supply of salt and electrolytes. In other words, not um, not getting enough from the the capsules I was taking. I don't know if I was using Salt Stick last year or some other similar product, Endurolite. So there are many different products, but um, I was not drinking a sports type drink. I was just drinking water, and I think I didn't get enough electrolyte to balance all the water I was taking in. You know, you can have too much salt and you can have too little. And I think too little is is worse than too much. So this year I decided to really focus in my training uh, on not getting into trouble again like I did last year. And I wound up um, using a a drink mix, um, an electrolyte drink mix that really worked for me very, very well. I still took some um, of those those capsules. But in addition, every other bottle, I refilled my bottle every couple of miles. Every other bottle was an electrolyte drink, and um, it made all the difference in the world. I did not, I had other issues, but I did not have any cramping problems. Well, are you willing to share the name of that drink? Uh, sorry, I just got distracted. Yes, I use Liquid IV. Okay. And Liquid IV worked well for me because it was not, it was not very cloying. What I, what I find with a lot of, um, a lot of sports drinks is after a while, they just, you just, they, I just can't drink them anymore. I can't get them down. They taste terrible. They make me feel lousy. Um, yeah. but this product, um, I was able to drink the entire race. And while it, after a while, it wasn't the most pleasant thing in the world. It did. It worked. I didn't no upset stomach issues. And again, I didn't have any cramping because I was pretty consistent about using it. So do you, in a race like that, do you use like ice bandana and that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. During the, um, the during the heat of the day, the, the, the key is to not overheat and, um, you absolutely need to use ice bandanas. I use one around my neck and I'll also use some ice under my hat. And you want to, you want to cover up as much as possible. Um, different schools of thought, but most people want to stay covered up. So I wear a long sleeve shirt. I wear um, uh, some type of hat with a neck a drape or uh, like this year for most of the race during the day, I wore a straw, just a straw hat, like a cowboy type hat. Um, that allowed air to circulate around my neck and ears, but still kept me shaded pretty well. And under that hat, what I do is I take a buff, tie off one end, put some ice in it. And that what that's what goes under the hat. But you can take a, a baggie, punch a few holes in it and put ice in that. So basically, you've got ice on your, on your head, under your hat, ice around your neck. Some people will um, put it in their sleeves. Uh, women will use put them in their jog bra. Uh, ice is... Uh, the ultra runner's best friend at Badwater to help keep your temperature under control. So I know some, I know like Dawn had advised me before to put the ice in a baggie to keep the water from leaking down into your shoes and causing blisters. But I know I I did a race in Arizona and it was very dry, Black Canyon. And I was advised differently from those local people because they said the water will never make it to you. It's so dry out here. The water will never make it to your shoes. <laughs> so, and yeah. Yeah. So within does, reason, within reason, that's true at, at uh, out in Death Valley as well. Um, no problem with, uh, and actually the, the water, 
the ice turning into water and um, kind of melting down your your back feels really good. So yeah, uh, I wouldn't be afraid of it in a in a hot, dry weather race. Yeah. Okay. So so let's move into this this year's race. Okay. You said you had you changed up your hydration. And uh, I was following along. I know uh, David Castro. Right. And uh, that's kind of where I learned about you. So I, I know the story of, of how it went. But just tell me kind of how it started and, you know, what was different than last year, you know, as far as the pacing. Sure. Well, last year was 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 very odd because for the first time that I can ever remember, at the start of the race, we and for the first 18 miles, we had a very, very strong headwind that was extremely dry and carried a lot of sand dust. So it was, um, uh, you know, it was very dehydrating and you were fighting this strong wind in your face the entire time, it got in your eyes. And um, I mean, it was really a mess. So by the time you finished that first 18 miles, you were already pretty well dehydrated, which didn't help my, you know, my electrolyte issue any and uh, pretty exhausted. So this year we did not have that issue, but we thank, thankfully, the temperature just before the start of the race was, as you mentioned earlier, 122. So it was a hot year, hotter than most years, but the heat's always a factor out there. But for me, what happened this time that I've never had to deal with before is I, I got blisters on both feet across the ball of my feet, both feet, uh, right at the beginning of the race in the first few miles. So I was uh, having to run through the, the pain of foot blisters Um as I say, for the first time ever, I almost never get blisters anywhere on my feet, but this year was uh, different, <laughs> a different experience. So right from the get-go, I had to uh, I had to contend with that. And it's hard to know, but it's very possible that my gait might've changed a little bit because of that. In any event, once I got beyond uh, mile 50, that 50 mile cutoff is really the toughest cutoff. If you make it through there, you're, you're probably gonna be pretty good to go as long as you can stay steady. But what happened to me at about mile 90 or 95 is I, uh, I wound up having a back spasm. The muscles in my back started spasming. And from there, from roughly 90 or so all the way to 135, uh, I had, you know, I had a very sore, painful back. And what was happening is I was starting, it was causing me to start leaning, leaning over. And by the time uh, I got to the last 13 miles, which is climbing up Mount Whitney Portal Road, up to the 8,500 foot elevation of the finish line. Um, that last few miles, I was almost bent over in half and uh, literally couldn't look up to see where I was going. It was, um, it was pretty weird to say the least. I'd never had that severe a reaction like that before. Uh, I've had some back pain, but not that bad. And um, the, last, uh, the last couple of miles, uh, my legs basically st- stopped working. I was able to move, oh, walk, 15 or 20 paces or so. And then my legs just wouldn't work. I had to stop, kind of gather myself and, um, and then go another 15 or 20. That became very difficult, and very frustrating, but, you know, I was bound and determined to make it to the finish line. So I don't know if you want me to go ahead and talk about further details here. I can do that. Um, at one point I asked the race medical director who was kind of walking alongside me just to be sure that I wouldn't do any, any permanent damage. And I was totally lucid. I mean, I was fine. And I asked her if to break up the muscle monotony to maybe make it easier to get my legs moving better, if I could actually um, get down on all four and do like a bear crawl to, you know, again, this to change up the muscles. And she thought about it and she said, well, the, the rule is you have to make it to the finish line under your own power. So I don't see why not. So 
that last mile or so, I actually spent some time on all fours, just, uh, just moving forward as best I could. And then I'd get back up and walk some and, you know, that, that's what happened. So I had been well ahead of, of pace to finish within the 48 hours allowed to finish the race. But in that last couple of miles, I slowed down to the point again, not being able to move steadily where the time of the clock actually, um, you know, the 48 hours came and went and I finished in 48 hours and 17 minutes. So I actually missed the cutoff. Now I it counted as a, as a semi-official finish. I'm the oldest person to finish. And I finished the race about 12 hours faster than the previous record holder that, well, really the current record holder, but technically um, it was not an official finish and obviously pretty frustrating that uh, I'd been able to get there, but not in, in time. So you just never know, Marty, what's going to happen out there. You yeah. kind of, it's hard to prepare for everything because you just, you just don't really know. So this year it was, uh, it was blisters and my back, but really mostly my back. That was the problem. And um, here we are six weeks later and it's still not a hundred percent. It's getting there. And I do think it's just muscular. I don't think I did any permanent damage, but uh, like I said, you just, you just never know what's going to, cause you uh going to be the challenge of the day when you do an ultra so do you do you think it was related to the blisters that changed your gait that made your back yeah the, the tweak the muscle in there or something i i don't know uh, that's total speculation okay. I, I don't i don't really think so but there are a couple of people have mentioned that to me and said that could have been it and, and it could have been yeah. but um whatever it was uh you know how it how i tweaked it i i, I don't know and I don't know that there's anything I really could have done about it. I haven't done all the research yet, but once something like that happens and you start leaning, uh, I don't know if there's an easy way to recover. And for me, it started so early that it just, you know, it just, I was, I had to continue like, you know, like I said, 40 miles or more, 45 miles, uh, not in the best of condition. Yeah. I've seen a couple of ultras where I've seen people kind of lean into the side before. Right. I know Pam did it at uh, Cocodona last year. I can't remember her last name, but she's done tons of races. You probably know her. Um, Ultra yeah, Pam. Say again? Ultra Pam. I can't think of her. Oh, name. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pam Chapman Markle. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, now when you were doing the bear crawling, was it nighttime by then? Not. It was approaching nighttime. Um, it was. Um, it was sort of dusk. And you're up there on Mount Whitney near the portal where the where the road ends. And um, it's a beautiful forested area. So it's shadowy there anyhow because of the trees. Okay. And, you're, you know, the mountains are towering over you on most sides. So it gets a little darker in there. But it wasn't, it wasn't full dark at that point, no. So the, so the pavement was not sizzling like it would have been out in the uh, desert part? No, it was, uh, it was hot. And, you know, when I finished up, I realized my, my, my hands were all black with, with uh, tar residue. But... It was hot, but not something I couldn't stand. Uh, but yeah, no, it could never have done that out <laughs> out in uh, out in the middle of the desert for sure. Yeah, because I remember David saying he he went down with a cramp and and had burns on his arms for where he went down on the pavement. Oh, I ab- absolutely believe that. Yeah, there's no question about it. It's um, the heat. The, the 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 blacktop just absorbs that heat, as do the rocks. By the way. And they only very gradually radiate that heat back up into the air over the course of a night. So um, it stays hot even after the sun goes down for quite a while. But the reason it wasn't so bad up where I was at the finish line is, first of all, at, at altitude, it's cooler. Yeah. But more importantly, there's, you know, you're in, you're in some shaded area and that helps a lot. 
I remember seeing like some of the footage on their social media, Badwater social media, that there were like there was like a crowd kind of accumulating around you and going along with you. Uh, how far was did the crowd hang with you? Was it more than a mile? Oh yeah, it was a number of miles, and it was ab- absolutely astounding. I had no idea um, that that would happen, but there were just a ton of runners there. And interestingly enough, near the finish line there at uh, the Mount Whitney portal, it's a big camping area. So with all this commotion going on, there were a lot of campers that came out to see what was happening. And <laughs> so a lot of non-runners joined the, joined the party. And then, then there were some friends who, who drove up um, and were able to kind of drive alongside me for part of it, bl- blasting Tina Turner uh, on the radio, which was kind of motivating. So, you know, and it reached a point with everybody cheering me on and everything that I not only wanted to finish that darn thing for myself, but for them as well. And uh, it was quite emotional. It really was. Um, it was hard. It's uh, It was a hard finish. No question about that. Yeah. So so the crowd there, it fired you up. It didn't, you know, it didn't just, you know, it wasn't a negative experience at all. Oh, no, no, not at all. Like I said, I was totally coherent, totally lucid. And I was talking to people yeah. um, and, um, you know, trying to focus mostly on what I was doing. But, you know, and I was in pain. So, I mean, distraction was actually helpful. <laughs> and um, I play mind tricks with myself too, to try to just distract myself from what I was doing. And every once in a while, I would say to my crew, would you, I'd, 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 as I told you, I'd walk a little and have to stop and kind of collect myself to get going again. And I'd ask my crew to kind of stand me up to try to straighten my back <laughs> so I could look ahead and see where I was going. I mean, literally was looking down at my feet, down at the road and could not uh, you know, it was like an L shape. I couldn't, I just couldn't stand up. It was crazy. Stand up if you had to, huh? Yeah. It was pretty weird. Wow. Yeah. I recovered pretty quickly after that, you know, certainly the next morning I was fine. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, there was a lot of fatigue and a lot of stress and strain on the old body at that point. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, a lot of us never get to the point to where we actually give a hundred percent and know where the body says, okay, that's enough. But but when it when it makes that decision, you can't really fight it. Can you? Yeah, it's a push. There's no question. I you know I, I made the joke to my 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 body and my back learned how to speak Spanish, and they were saying no mas, no mas. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I had to push pretty hard to get through it. I mean, I'm glad I did. I you know I got a lot of feedback afterwards. It's been those those videos have seen a a ton of view of viewers and. You know, I get a lot of feedback about how I was able to inspire a lot of people. And that's, you know, that's good enough for me. I mean, that that's really important. And it's one of the reasons why at my age, I keep doing this stuff. Well, I'm glad you have that attitude. You know, some people get embarrassed about being about their experiences being an inspiration. But, you know, if I can, if I could inspire one person, like I think I heard you say in another interview to, to get off the couch and, uh, go for a walk or whatever, or a run or whatever, then I'll, I'm okay with that. I'm Absolutely. More than okay yeah. with it. I'm happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. No, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. And you know, you've got, you've got, a, you've got decades left in you if you're able to just stay healthy. And part of that is modifying your training and to do what's age appropriate, not pushing too hard. So you're not injuring yourself and selecting races that make sense. Yeah. So for example, in my earlier uh, ultra running days, I would, um, you know, I ran trail races and would bomb down the bomb downhills and I can't do that anymore. It's too, uh, my balance isn't as good as it used to be. And all it takes is one improper footstep and you're down for the count. So you can really hurt yourself. So 
you know, I, I just select my races more carefully and also recognize that I live in Florida where it's totally flat. So it's really hard to train for hills. And also there really aren't any trails down here either to speak of. So yeah, it's hard to train for those, uh, for those kinds of races. You have to figure out alternatives and, you know, kind of synthetic ways to create hills for yourself. So yeah. Like for bad water, you know, I'll, I'll pull a tire, I use a Stairmaster in a, in a gym and uh, go back and forth and back and forth across the highest bridge down here, which isn't very high. Um, and that's the kind you know, that's, that's, that's the training I, I have. That's how I have to train because there aren't any mountains here to, to train on. Yeah. So you said pull a tire. I was going to ask you how you train for those, that in that elevation there. So you saying pull a tire, what do you, I, I know that like trail toes has a tire you can get and pull or, or an apparatus. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's right. And Vince Antunes owns that company has actually created a nice little rig to, that works beautifully. But basically you're talking about a, 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 a sort of a weight type of belt that has a hook on it and you attach a rope to the belt on one end and then you get yourself a, an old SUV tire, um, put an eye hook in it, uh, drill a hole, put an eye hook in it and attach the other end of the rope to that, to that uh, eye hook on the tire. You generally have about a oh, 10, 12 foot length of rope. You set that tire flat down on the ground. And as you go forward, it, it create the tire creates resistance and it somewhat simulates the effect of gravity as you're going uphill. So that's the theory about that training technique, which I certainly didn't invent, but I've been doing it since Lisa introduced it to me. My first time I ever went to a training camp, uh, but 17 years ago, and a lot of people have learned the technique and do it. Um, and yeah, the trail toes guy, Vince does a really creates a nice little package that is not real expensive. And, uh, it's a great way to do it. And I mean, you know, service station, not far from us, it's still kind of an old fashioned one where they pump gas for you. Um, and have three bays where they do mechanical work and they have a pile of old tires out back and they're glad to, they're glad to give me one. In fact, they'll even drill a hole and stick the eye hook in there. So yeah, if, you, if it's something you're interested in trying, uh, if you're, if you live, if you're a flatlander, um, yeah, it's pretty easy to put that together and it's really good training. So what kind of mileage do you, do you actually run pulling the tire or are you just hiking, power hiking? Um, mostly I'm power hiking. Uh, power, power hiking, power walking is a vitally important part of ultra running, right. especially as you get older, you, you know, unless you're an elite, you're unlikely to run the entire distance. You're going to mix running in. Um, so I'll run a little, but mostly I'm walking, pulling that tire. Uh, and that, that will work for me. If I was 15, 20 years or more younger, uh, my training might be different. I might, might run more with it, but again, it's age appropriate trying to maximize my training while minimizing injury opportunity. So um, the tire is great, but uh, again, mostly power walking. What was your, like in your training, your peak week, what, what kind of mileage did you do your peak, you know, your longest couple of weeks leading up into that? Um, Lisa is not a huge believer in big, big mileage. So um, my big, big weeks were probably in the 50 to 60 mile range. Okay. Uh, I did go out to Death Valley in June. Um, spent a weekend out there and did two 30 mile backs to back to backs, which was really helpful for both the hills and the heat. Um, but I do a lot of cross training core work. Uh, it's not all about, it's not all about running mileage. Yeah. And now the heat acclimation, you got plenty of heat down there in South Florida, but like everybody says, is this a different kind of heat? So do you, do you like get out in the heat and run with extra clothes on? 
No, I don't, I don't do that. Um, some people do. I don't find it necessary. It's hot and humid enough here. But what I do is supplement it with time in a sauna. So um, I go in a dry sauna that I'm fortunate to have access to at my gym and uh, build up time, basically just sitting in that sauna, uh, bringing water with me and getting used to drinking a lot of water and just used to the heat. And that really helps a lot. Um, so going out to Death Valley for a couple of days, I mean, that's not something everybody can do, but um, for me, it was, you know, the heat was the heat acclimation was good, but even more importantly for me was being able to be, uh, run, run and climb those hills. That's what I did mostly during those two back-to-back 30 milers. Yeah. So just to be clear about the, uh, record. So the guy that has the record, he, when he said it, the cutoff was 60 hours, right? Yeah, that's correct. It was 2010 and Jack Deness was 75. Uh, he's a Brit who had run the race many times. In fact, uh, I was at the finish line with a lot of other people cheering him on that year. He had 60 hours to finish it and he finished in 59 hours and 13 minutes. So at least in theory, well, I mean, in the real world, had I finished within the regulation time, uh, I would have beaten him by a minimum of 12 hours. Uh, And actually my goal time was about 44 hours, which I thought, and I still think was realistic, just didn't happen this year. so, uh, yeah, but it was a different era, different set of rules. And um, what year did it change to 48 hours? I, I think it was 2012. It was right around that time. So it was just two, three years after Jack set, uh, set the record. And the reason was that runners at Badwater, really runners in the ultra marathon world in general, were getting faster, getting younger and faster. And there just weren't that many people finishing between 48 and 60 hours. Mm-hmm. And you know, a race director has to balance a lot of things. And one of them is how long do you keep your volunteers out there? Um, and he realized at that point that he could shorten the allowable number of hours and still field a full slate of candidates, most of whom would be able to uh, beat that 48 hour cutoff. And it saved 12 hours of volunteer staff time up on the mountain. Um, I think it was the right decision for sure. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, when I was 70 and I did my Badwater double, my, my time was 41 hours. So, uh, the, the three times I finished, I was all clustered around 40, one year a little under, and the other two just a little over. So, it's not unrealistic at all. So, you said Badwater double. What do you mean? You went up and back? Yeah. Um, so I completed the race, and um, the next night I actually summited Mount Whitney. So, um, went from the lowest, the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere, actually, Badwater Basin at the start of the race at 282 feet below sea level, up to the highest point in the lower 48 states, which is Mount Whitney. It's 14,550, I believe. And then you turn around and go back uh, and uh, get a little sleep and then went all the way back to Badwater Basin. So <laughs> it's a 292-mile round trip, I, the oldest person to have completed that. And a lot of people have done it. I think it was like 28 or 30 people at the time that I did it a few years ago. What was the total amount of days that it took you to do that? Oh, it was um, somewhere between six and seven all in. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no specific cutoff. That's not, you know, it's not a race. The, right. the first part of it was for me. And some people have done it independently without, without including the actual bad water 135 race in it. So they've just on their own gone out and back. There are uh, rules about how you have to track that to make it official. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a long way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So 
I know you've probably had tons of uh, opportunities for interviews and all this stuff. So like for a lot of people, you're the challenges that you faced and to finish that race was their biggest, most powerful from that race. But what did you, what was the most powerful thing for you to take away from that particular race, that, that bad water this year? Well, well, I think I have to, I have to, that, that probably has two parts. One is um, again, that you just never really know what's uh, what's, what uh, what the race is going to throw at you, and best laid plans may or may not come to fruition. Um, when the stars align, it's absolutely fantastic, but they don't always. You know, you mentioned David Castro, you mentioned Don Lisenby, and they were they were unable to finish this year, and certainly did not go into that race expecting not to finish. So you just really never know. And the other part of it for me was, while it was disappointing not to finish within the allotted time. As I said earlier, the number of people from whom I got feedback about how I inspired them to, you know, to do different things. And that was, and there were a couple other things that I want to share at this time, but that, that, that all made me realize how um, it was quite okay not to have finished because of things that had merely not a whole lot to do with the running that were important as well. Yeah. No, it's just, I, I hope that's helpful and, you know, maybe a little helpful to some of your listeners. Um, it's just an incredibly wonderful sport. It's very complex. It's very technical. When you go these distances, there's just so much to consider and so much to balance, taking nothing at all away from a marathon or a half marathon, but doing an ultra is, um, it's just a lot more complicated. And, um, it's not like you can say, well, marathon is 26 miles. So I can do a 50 mile. It's just like two marathons. It's, it's more than just two marathons, just like a hundred miles is more than four marathons. It's becomes much more complex. The longer you're out there, and the more miles you have to be on your feet and uh, you, you, using up your body. So I know like for myself personally, I mean, just like the week or a week or two after Badwater, I had a race that I was doing and I had in my head that, you know, if Bob will get down on his hands and knees, <laughs> and just, then there's no way I'm not, you know, there's no way I'm quitting. So I know you've probably had dozens of maybe hundreds of people tell you you know how you inspired them are there any that that kind of stand out uh, that inspire somebody to do something really great or special that you've heard about um well yeah i'm gonna i'll share a story with you in a minute i I do want to say this though that one of the (laughs) excuse me one of the reasons i was able to and wanted to keep going was because i was pretty darn sure that i was not creating any permanent damage for myself Right. I think that's something that it's extremely important that people think about. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, this guy did kept going and never stopped. So I'm not going to do it either. It's another thing to be sure that, you know, it, it ultras hurt, you know, you, it beats the hell up out of your body. So they hurt, but you can recover pretty quickly from most stuff. As long as you're pretty sure that you're not doing any permanent damage, then, you know, it's a, it, it, so much of it is mental. And if you can overcome the challenge of, uh, of the physical pain, then go for it, you know, would be my, would be my, uh, my advice, but be very careful that you're not causing any permanent damage. Um, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to close with something that I'll share with you that uh, kind of responds to what you were just asking me about. Did anything in particular stick in my mind when I finished the race or just after I finished, reached the finish line, somebody pulled over a chair and I sat in the chair and they did a little presentation and uh, we were, was bantering back and forth with people. Somebody handed me a beer and, you know, it was, it was fun. And then, you know, people started leaving and 
they came came around, shook my hand or gave me a little hug or whatever it was. And one woman came up to me who I didn't know, and I don't think she was a runner, and um, uh, handed me a piece of paper and said to me, please take this with you and promise me you'll read it. Not now, but read it later. And so I, I did. And she handed me this note, and I'm going to read the note to you. Um, and I think it'll speak for itself in terms of its of its impact. She wrote, I have been looking for some reason to stay alive as I watch you make it up the hill. I told God, if you made it to the finish line, I promised to live 100 more days than take it from there. Yeah, well, I was right. I can hardly still read that and not tear up. I mean, it was it was mind boggling. And to think that 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 effort might have contributed to somebody not, you know, committing suicide. My God, it just there's just nothing more profound than that. So I don't know who she was. I don't know how to I wish I could follow up with her and help her. But I don't I'll, it, it, you know, it'll never happen. But right. anyway, um, I suppose that's a good way to wrap it up. huh? Uh, you just never know who you're going to affect and how you're going to affect them, Marty. It's uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I I can tell you, and you know, I'm sure you get tired of hearing it, but it has certainly affected me positively in many ways. You know, I just started running at 52 and I have lots more I want to do and you inspire me and, and give me hope that uh, I I have a good chance of getting it done. And so. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you're telling me that. And, you know, I'm, you know, equally grateful that it's, that is, that I'm able to help people out. So Hey, thank you, man. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing you at, uh, up in Cape Fear. Thank you. Well, we'll I'll be seeing you at, oh, Daytona. at Daytona. That's right. I'll see you before that. See you in December. And so, uh, yeah, well, let's, we'll close it out with that. Bob, well, I sure appreciate you joining me, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening. All right. Well, thank you. We'll see you in uh, Jacksonville Beach on Friday the 2nd. Look forward to seeing you, Marty. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a good yes, night. Sir, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, what a guy. If that story doesn't inspire you, then you must be in a coma. I'm so thankful for Bob Becker to take the time to share his story with me and my listeners, and I'm thankful to you for making the decision to spend an hour with Miles with Marty. Please go check out the new website, mileswithmarty.com, with lots of cool stuff on there. I want to sincerely thank you for running your Miles with Marty today. I know there's a lot of choices out there, and it means a lot to me that you chose to run or ride with me. I hope you enjoyed the show. If so, give us a review. Hit that subscribe button and spread the word, just like that running community love. We're on social media at Miles with Marty Podcast, and you can email us at mileswithmartypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Squirrels Nut Butter. Spread the lube at squirrelsnutbutter.com.